Welcome to the Review Be Named podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me on the show this week, we have Alex. Hey. Sam. Hello. And Chris. Yo. We have a lot of news to talk about this week, and obviously I think most of our listeners know what the biggest story we're going to be discussing is, because we're all nerds. So I'm going to do the uh, news roundup a bit like a German train conductor this week. We're going to move pretty quick through a lot of the stuff. So if you got something to say, say it, and then I'm going to make us move on. Uh, first things first, we're all pretty excited about the idea that Community is coming back uh, on February 7th at 8 o'clock. That's a Thursday. It's back in its regular time slot. So it's a little bit of ways, but we're excited about it. Yay! Um, everyone just say yay. yay. Yay! Another thing that at least leads me to think yay, um, NBC has decided to pass on The Farm, the Office spinoff uh, starring Dwight. This was an idea that never really excited me all that much. Um, I don't know. What, did you guys have any quick thoughts? No. No. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Moving on, then. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about a few comics-related news stories that have popped up this week. We have uh, Brian Singer has been announced to be directing the sequel to X-Men First Class, X-Men Days of Future Past. It was originally going to be directed... <laughs> what a stupid name. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a name of one of the famous X-Men arcs, right, Chris? Yeah, it is. Hey, Chris, does that make it any better? I don't think so. <laughs> Especially not when you pair it with X-Men First Class, Days of Future Past. Oh, Probably my God. It makes everything better. Oh, my God. Yeah, actually, that's... Dr. A, that's Seuss is like, that's a little over the top for a title. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, that's a thing. Brian Singer directing an X-Men movie is sort of exciting. That's great. I love Brian um, Singer. In related and less exciting news, Jamie Foxx has been cast as Electro in the next Spider-Man movie. Hey, oh no, the next Spider-Man movie will be bad. Like the first Spider-Man movie. It wasn't that bad. It was just It was exactly pretty mediocre. It was just yeah. like, we'd just seen the same movie ten years earlier. Um, Actually, but but with the same movie was better. I think the first I was two... Say, I thought the Sam Raimi first two Spider-Men were better, honestly. They I agree. Really um, movies were better than you didn't like Tobey Maguire. No, I didn't. I think the chemistry. I think they had I good th- chemistry, but the movie was so little of that. Yeah, I thought it was a great cast that didn't get to do a whole lot, honestly, because it was just sort of a, a straightforward story. Let's just argue about The Amazing Spider-Man for the next, like, hour and a half. And it's like, <laughs> there's, like, Star Wars coming out, but we're going to argue about Spider-Man. We're getting there. Um, we're actually, we've been moving at lightning speed, if you think about it. So it's okay to stop for a minute to say that we have mixed feelings on Amazing Spider-Man. But let's move on um, and talk about The Walkmen, the band, uh, had to cancel a show a few weeks ago. And they are doing their makeup show, uh, offering spaghetti and meatballs, cheap beer, and playing covers of various bands, including Coldplay, rather, to their fans while uh, they set up for the show. So I think that's a cool little thing they're doing. I like the Walkman as a band. Um, That's an interesting way to make it up to your fans when you uh, had to cancel a show. What do you guys think about this? I like them as a band as well. I thought that was just kind of funny. Is someone recording in a wind tunnel, by the way? No, not me. I'm blaming Chris. It's probably Chris. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like there's, like... There's feedback of some sort. Um, Whatever. Whoever's in the wind tunnel, get out of the wind tunnel and come talk to us about the Walkman. Sorry, guys. Uh, I was testing my uh, new car prototype in a wind tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) Sam's in his lab recording the podcast. It turns out a perfectly square car is not that wind resistant, so... (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, back to the drawing board. Next, uh, yeah. triangles. <laughs> Hooray, the Walkman. Next, please. Next. Um, so this is another cool story by a band that I uh, think their new album is at least decent. I don't know if the rest of you have heard of them. The XX. They released their new album, Coexist, a few months ago, and they've released an interactive app that'll have tour info, behind-the-scenes information, lyrics, and a visualizer to go along with the album, uh, mostly to get people to not steal it and to actually buy the album and to get all the, the extras that go along with it. I think that's a cool and interesting new way to try to get people to not pirate your music. What do you guys think about that? I think someone will find a way to pirate the app. Yes, yeah, someone will pirate it, and the wheels will keep turning. In the yeah. land of torrenting. None of you are wrong, I'm sure. Um, in fact, I bet if we did a search right now during the podcast, we could find a torrent with this. But we've got too much to do in the oh, news oh, roundup Review here. to be named contest. First person to email us a link to the torrent of this gets a review to be named prize of some sort. You'll <laughs> win the week next week. Yeah. Oh, there you go. You'll <laughs> win the week next week. We will actually call you out on the podcast and let you win the week, regardless of whatever else happens next week. So, you know, if... I don't know, something amazing in pop culture happens like it did this week. You will still win the week if you find this torrent and email it to renamed at gmail.com. So get on it, folks. Um, but now, all of that is important. I hope you grabbed all of that. Uh, we went through it rather fast. But let's talk about what's really happened this week and possibly the biggest story in pop culture this year. Disney bought Lucasfilm and has announced there will be a new Star Wars movie. Star Three. Wars Episode Seven in 2015. Yeah, they're going to... It's going to... And I then 8 gonna, and 9 and 17. They're not going to just make 7, 8, 9, but they're going to just like... Keep doing it. I'd love to see it be like kind of like a James Bond type franchise or something, where they can just keep the most about this. Where they can just keep making like if I can live in a world where there are always going to be more Star Wars movies forever, I think that's good. And even if some of them are bad, some of them will be good at some point. You know? Yeah, I, I I completely agree. And obviously, yes, they're going to make a lot more. I was starting with the big news that it's coming very soon. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's exciting that they're going to be making more. And like you said, Sam. The more they make, the more likely it is that some of them will be really good. Um, yeah. I also think that you have you have a situation right now where Lucas is not really going to be involved. Uh, you have a generation of filmmakers who came up loving the original Star Wars movies and have had a decade to bitch about how much they didn't like the new trilogy and what they would change about it. So whoever they get to do this is going to have a lot of ideas, I think. Well, I think that's like, this is like, I don't, I don't know what the equivalent of this is. It's like... The person trying to like pull the sword out of the stone or something, whoever is like going to direct this thing, because you know, like, forget about the story of what's going to happen in the next one. The biggest news surrounding this is who's going to direct it. Because think about like the pressure that comes with this. Because it's not like Bond. Because Bond has always had a tradition of like different directors, and even though you know the original Star Wars trilogy had different director, it this is the first one where George Lucas is away, even though he's still on technically as a creative consultant, that's kind of a bullshit position. Um, This is going to be the first time where someone is like out of the, out of the George Lucas shadow and no one's going to be able to blame George Lucas if it's really shitty. They Um, still will. I mean, I I mean, they might, but I don't think it'll, it it wouldn't be fair. Um, Yeah. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't blame George Lucas if the next one is shitty. I would blame whoever wrote and directed it. I certainly wouldn't blame Disney though. He's a creative what What you're finding now is I feel like, the really uninformed Star Wars people are coming out of the woodwork because they're the people who are complaining about this. If you have ever claimed to be a fan of Star Wars and you think this is a bad move, like Disney's going to throw like Mickey Mouse and Goofy into the next Star Wars movie movie, and they're going to be like sword fighting in a cartoon, you're out of your fucking mind. 
Because these people yeah. clearly, they've forgotten about the little thing, you know, like the Avengers, like the Marvel movies that everyone loves so goddamn much. That's because Disney bought it. Do you remember what happened? There was like your Angley Hulk before that shit. So I think Disney, while Disney might be this overarching, you know, evil empire to some people, Disney is in the business of making a shit ton of money. And the best way they're going to do that is to kind of guard this franchise and to like, and to keep it relevant and to keep it good. And I, I really believe that they're going to try to hire the right people to make this good. And I think if you're not happy about this, then you're not really a Star Wars fan. Because the worst thing for Star Wars that it was just kind of sitting on the shelf of George Lucas doing nothing and dying after he just made a couple of shitty movies. But now it has the opportunity to, you know, to be good again, yeah. to be relevant again, and to people to be happy about the product again. And what I keep telling people who are upset that Lucas isn't involved, which are, like you say, these more uninformed, not Star Wars geek people, uh, look at the greatest Star Wars movie, almost, I think, without argument, Empire Strikes Back, is the one that Lucas did not write nor direct. Yep. I think there's a, there's a tradition of, after A New Hope, the less involvement Lucas has with your Star Wars movie, the better it is. Yeah, I don't think you can argue with that. I saw... A- Big backlash was on my Facebook from people saying how terrible it is, but this is the best thing that could have happened to Star Wars. The best. All you need to do is look at how Disney's handled their purchases of Pixar and Marvel, because exactly. they take that, they take those yeah. companies, they figure out what makes them unique, what makes them great, and they put uh, people in charge that represent that, and they're going to do that with Lucasfilm. It's not in Disney's interest to fuck up Star Wars. Star Wars is a, it's a money machine. They already know done, that the first you know? three prequels were terrible. They're not. They don't want to do that. Yeah. Is is this backlash anything more than like all I've seen really are are the memes, which you know some of them are kind of funny. Most of them are pretty annoying. Well, I mean, like, I, I understand. haven't really seen a like legitimate out. Like, what what is the outrage that you've been seeing? I've, I've I mean, really I've seen, seen people on like Twitter and stuff and on Reddit who are like, "This is bad," like because they they. They think of Disney as just, like, the mouse, you know? And they think yeah. of it as, like, you know, the Disney princesses and, like, all that shit. And they're like, that's not what Star Wars is. Star Wars is cool. Star Wars is, like, Beauty and the Beast. But, I, I mean, I think that's just people who have, like, you know, a gross misunderstanding of, like, not just, like, what Disney does, but, think like, people don't understand, like, all the things Disney has its hands in. I mean, if yeah. you talk, if you talk to most sports fans who don't like pay that close attention they're like oh i don't want beauty and the beast fucking up my sports well you know what disney owns espn which is the monolith of sports entertainment and no one's no one's complaining about espn being too you know lame or having too many mickey mice you know running around do you know what I'm i saying? love that term <laughs> I, I i mean i think i don't think people really understand that like disney is Disney. It's a large, widespread yeah. entertainment company in yeah. the business of making a lot of money, and it's good at that. Yeah, they're, and they're... it's it's good for Star Wars because you know how long they've been trying to get a live action Star Wars on TV. It's been years, but decades I mean, probably. And they own ABC. They have tons of money just to throw at it and say, "Yes, we're going to put it on this channel at this time and this date." Like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised we'll so if at some point in the Star future Wars. we see a uh, 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 Star Wars television program. If not, on, if not on ABC, on on some other cable network, um, it'll be ABC. Let's come on. But uh, what's I mean? First, what's exciting? Like, just like look at the Avengers, and I'm sure when uh, like the Marvel film rights were bought by Disney, 
people were probably upset because they're like Disney. Making oh yeah, you had the you superheroes. had the exact same kind of backlash you're seeing now. Like everybody was like, "Oh, how long until uh, Wolverine and Mickey Mouse number one or the yeah. Hulk meets Goofy or something like that?" But guess uh, what happened? They made a bunch of like good movies, and then they made the Avengers, which is like this universally beloved thing. Yeah, and no one no one's making those jokes now about you know Mickey Mouse and Thor. But that's that's what it is. That was like the driving force. They were the people who backed it. They were the people who picked Joss Whedon. Which also brings us to the whole should Joss Whedon, right? You know that's my favorite pet theory. Not that I don't think it's going to happen, but I think that obviously it would make me the happiest person alive, and I would, I think I would die of excitement. Um, well, you know, I think I also think it makes some sense, right? Like you know, he he works for Disney now because he's on Marvel's payroll, um, and he just made them billions of dollars, and he will be done with Avengers two within you know. Theoretically uh, reasonable time. Well, maybe, I don't think, maybe it'll be cutting a little close. I don't even 2015 is going to be a hell of a year for movies. I don't yeah. think it's going to be physically possible for him to direct the next Star Wars movie. Just uh, just for a, a 2015's a Avengers thing. 2 and Star Wars 7 and see, Justice League. See, those movies can't both come out in the same summer and him directing both. I just, I don't see that yeah, happening. Exactly. And also, I don't, there's not, like, there's not a script yet. You know, and he's, he's probably already getting ready to go on Avengers 2. Um... But you know what? That's still three years away. That's I, enough time to get a script because, together and all um, that stuff. Because I don't think Joss is going to direct the next one, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for Brad Bird. Um, because oh. he already has, he already has obviously, the Disney connections with Pixar. And he's already he's proven that he can make an action movie with the latest Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible. which Mission I quite enjoyed. It was a really good the movie. Rumor that uh, Brad Bird and Damon Lindelof were already making this under the guise of the movie 1952. Do you think that's what it was? It's I mean, a, it's I've, been I've been debunked, hearing about that 1952 was though for a while. Yeah, it's not it's not true, but uh, that's that a fun. Well, going around. I just want to let everyone know, not true. <laughs> you heard it here. Um, but but what's important is is like 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 we've said already. They're going to make seven. They're going to make eight and nine. So Joss Whedon will probably direct one of those. Just the odds, or that he'll <laughs> direct Joss a Star Whedon Wars movie at some been, point. Like, yeah, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Has Joss Whedon ever said that? <laughs> is that a joke? I don't pay that much attention. Man. If you watch like any of his shows, they all heavily reference uh, Star Wars, and you can argue that Firefly is is Han Solo. Is basically Which, Han yeah, Solo. that's probably a reason why he wouldn't. Right, Firefly. Why would he want to go and make Star Wars? He'd rather do Firefly thing. Because Firefly is dead in the water. Shut and... up! No. <laughs> I'm sorry, Alex. I love Firefly, but it's not like there will be a likelihood motion of anything. Comic. But maybe an animated series happening is pretty slim. And also, Firefly grew out of Joss Whedon's love of Star Wars. You know, that's where I assume that's where the idea came from. I mean, it's a space western, but the man clearly loves Star Wars. And how do you not like? I think there's no way you say no if someone offers you the chance to direct a Star Wars movie, and whoever you are. Like, and if you're into Star- movies, if you like Star Wars, you take the chance to do that. And the Star Wars mm. universe is so big that I think Joss Whedon could direct a Star Wars that doesn't retread the same yeah, ground that he, he could, covered in He Firefly. could make his own characters, and I think that yeah. would be like the ultimate gift to someone who's a huge fan of Star Wars. And I know Joss, I don't think he's that interested right now, because he's already been doing the Avengers thing. I think he might be interested in making his own characters. It's kind of why I remember someone asked him about writing an episode of Doctor Who, and he said, you know, I've been doing the Avengers lately, and I'm kind of tired of doing other people's characters. So I think um, if he, if he you know, wants to do the next Star Wars movie, he won't be doing, like, 
you know, another thing people are worried about, which is ridiculous, is like, oh, they're going to bring back Carrie Fisher and old Han Solo, and it's going to be, like, terrible, and they're all going to be, like, in the hospital. But I, I think what's going to happen is space hospital. It's just going to be like it's going to be in it's going to be in that Star Wars universe, and he's going to be able to make characters and create their personalities, and he's not going to have to write around kind of old things. I'm sure there would be references to the past movies at some point, but I think now because we don't know how far in the future seven is after um, after six, you know, so it's really like this open book for whoever. Yeah, I don't think they're yeah. going to, like, recast them or anything, but if it was, like, no. you know, 40 years in the old Harrison Ford in there, kind of sitting at a bar or something. What's crazy is that if it was 40 years Shoot in the somebody future, first. it would be 40 years in the future. Like, Harrison Ford would be 40 years older than Han yep. Solo was, which is weird that he's that yeah. old. Um but let's let's be honest here. If they got Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford to do like a Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf Star Wars movie, yeah, like, that like, that would old, fly, Jordan. Old Han and Leia just like piss at each other, and no, obviously I'm joking, Sam. You should be the Disney executive, Jordan. Yeah, clearly seen, I should be planning the next Star Wars movie. Have you seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? Get yeah. Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford on the phone. <laughs> Throw Chewbacca in there for good measure. Oh my god. But, you know, another name I've heard thrown around, and my excitement of this is based on Skyfall, would be Sam Mendes. Because apparently Skyfall is, like, the shit. And everyone th- and everyone's now suggesting Sam Mendes could be, like, this big action director. But I haven't seen Skyfall yet, so I don't know how true that is. Well, that's There's... actually... I was going to wait till the end of the show to plug it, but we are doing our, our... Next week is a happy hour podcast, and we're actually making it a James Bond theme happy hour podcast. Uh, if we've all seen Skyfall, which I know I plan to by then... Uh, I think we'll probably discuss Skyfall on the show, and we'll do other things related to James Bond. So uh, we can talk more about Mendez next week, I think, definitely. Let me, let me pose a question a to you guys. That, oh, sorry, Alex, what were you saying? I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there. One director, Duncan Jones. Oh, yeah, that, I've seen him suggested too, and I love him. My only That'd concern is that he wouldn't get hired just because he... Like, his movies haven't been like huge box office smashy movies. But see, they though, don't have to be, because Star Wars, regardless of who directs it, going to be yeah i mean I, i'm i'm saying i think i agree that he would be a good choice i'm just i'm just imagining why a studio would kind of pass on him i feel like they'd want someone who's a little bit more proven you know uh, given yeah a big i budget. would say that the, Both for, your first star wars movie is going to be by a blockbuster director of some sort i mean um, i think there's i think, there's a, better chance of, safe bet for I think there's a better chance of ryan johnson than uh duncan jones who would also be exciting they, i mean i think they'd both be great i love moon and source code and Obviously, Brick and Looper were both great. So, but who yeah. knows? All I'm saying is, as long as it's not like Michael Bay or Jerry Bruckheimer, <laughs> which, to be honest, neither of them is outside their own possibility. No, and both they're both. They're, no one's outside. Well, they're both very. They're both very connected it. to uh, Disney. So, and they're yeah. both, you know, I mean, proven to bring in the money. That's. Oh, but it would, that would like. I'm st- would, I don't think they'll. But let me. Pick let me a director on based on who they think would bring them the most money because. Fucking Star Wars lightsabers brings them the money, not who's directing it. It's it's like a question of expectations, though. I mean, this is the first Star Wars you're going to see after a relatively long string of disappointing movies. So you're gonna you're gonna want a proven success because I agree with you, Alex. There are going to be people who always come in to see Star Wars, but the the pressure for this movie is if this one doesn't work, if this one isn't amazing. Then not only do you have three, four disappointing Star Wars in a row, 
you have like the changing of the guard, which is disappointing too. And you're just going to have people who are starting to give up hope in the franchise. But let me, let me pose something to you guys real quick. What do you, and I think I already know the answer to your question on this one. Would you rather see somebody uh, coming in, at least for this initial trilogy, as sort of an overseer for the universe, getting things back on track? Or do you prefer the James Bond model of each Star Wars we get from here on out is sort of a thing unto itself and sort of the vision of whatever director comes in and does it, and then the next one can either follow it or it's just something completely different? I don't know, because, I mean, you kind of saw, like, with the Harry Potter franchise, they... You know, obviously the the series had an overarching story, but they were able to switch directors pretty seamlessly and at times improve and, you know, maybe some would say not improve. But that was a series where there was there was a real through line, obviously, through the story. And they were able to, I think, successfully uh, transition between directors. So, I, I mean, I think it would be possible that you can have a cohesive trilogy and not have the same director for each movie. Um, I, I think it, it really depends more on the writer, honestly, than the director, because um, you might have a guy, if, if someone has like a good idea for a trilogy, that's different than a director for hire. I, I'd like to think that they'll come out with a trilogy. I'd like to think that they're going to start this off. Seven, eight, nine will be a big trilogy story. Um, that'll be more interconnected than you know, more of a James Bond model. Although, when we talk about the James Bond model, like, you've seen during Casino Royale and the Daniel Craig era, like, more of a, a an ongoing narrative throughout his movies, which I think is interesting. But we could talk about that next week. I don't remember anything that happened, though, at Quantum of Solace, though, so I have no idea. <laughs> he found a Quantum of Solace. Did he, he might have. I don't know. I really I can't remember. Um, th- that's all for next week. For now, I would say... I would like to see it be a big epic story. Um, and I think there's room, <coughs> considering they plan on doing an ongoing Star Wars, you know, forever, probably. They're going to be doing movies every two or three years into perpetuity, I imagine. I think there's room for both. I think you can do a big trilogy and then a few one-off movies that are more, you know, focused on ancillary stories and more focused on the director's vision. And I also think, like Sam said, you can do a combination of the two where you have a strong narrative that also has an authorial presence from the director. Uh, Prisoner of Azkaban is the Harry Potter movie I think we go to with that, you know. It still managed to track the Harry Potter storyline, although I would argue not necessarily as well as some of the other movies, and yet it's clearly an Alfonso Cuaron movie. Um, it's got, you know, everything that makes an Alfonso Cuaron movie is present in that, and I think it worked pretty well as, as a combination of the two. I think they'll, like, I don't think that one director is going to do the next three movies. I think they might shift directors throughout, but I do think that they're going to keep it with the trilogy uh, mindset where here's a block of three movies that tell this one story and then we finish that up here's another trilogy yeah I mean I suppose that's true I mean George Lucas has said that he's like given over his stories for 789 and that they're being you know writers are looking at them or whatever and laughing at them uh, <laughs> probably they're like Jar Jar Binks is again rising to Look power. Look at this Jar Jar Binks is kidding. Whatever, uh, whatever species Jar Jar Binks was, Gungan. all of them He's fighting Gungan. Ewoks. Please. Gungan's fighting Ewoks. Gungan's fighting Ewoks for three movies straight. Well, let's put it let's let's put it this way. First of all, there's the report that we've been hearing forever. I don't know if you guys have been listening to this. There's a guy who claims he got a look at. Lucas's nine movie saga in the 80s that oh, he yeah. saw the scripts for mm. one, two, three, four, five, six, 
789, and that he thought 789 was the best trilogy. Um, I personally think that that is all bullshit. Of course it's and bullshit. that there was no plan. Uh, Lucas claims he wrote the nine-movie saga, but if you look at the first three movies, it seems more like Lucas wrote them in the years right before they were released than that they planned cohesively uh, to flow with four, five, and six. So I don't know how much, if any, story Lucas really has for seven, eight, and nine. I don't think it matters. I think at the end of the day, um, whoever comes in to write this thing, they might end up changing it. Uh, well, even if he do. does have story notes, whoever writes it can write it better than Lucas, who we all know his one of his biggest problems is with writing reasonable dialogue. Yeah. So if it's a decent story, even if they do take the Lucas story, it's going to be better if it's got someone else writing the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this can, only, a... this can only be better. I mean, I feel like Star Wars in a, was in such a shitty place. Um, the only concern is, though, of course, that they just, you know, they fuck up who they pick to write it and who they pick to direct it. But even I... even if they screw that up, though, I'd still kind of have, like, faith in the franchise again because, you know, even if this next one is bad, they can get a different director for one or two Star Wars down the line that'll be good, so... Right. I, I ultimately think this is not bad news. Even if we get a terrible episode 7 for some weird reason, I think ultimately this is good news for Star Wars in the long term. They will definitely get it right eventually, and the idea that it's just going to keep going, I mean, it sure is that. It might be a situation where we have a James Bond, whereas like Quantum of Solace wasn't the success they were hoping for, and so there was a bit of a gap, but they're going to keep going, which I think is the best news to come out of this. And also... Just this idea of you, in the, the original three movies, you had this amazing, huge universe just invented. And each movie just kept adding things on and on and on. And I think that's what's the most exciting part about this is you could have a Star Wars movie that doesn't even touch on Jedi. Like, it's just that big of a galaxy, that big of a universe, where there's so many different things you can explore and visit. And the idea that there isn't, like, a set endpoint to it just really opens up that universe. I just read a Star Wars Extended Universe book that has zero Jedi. Nice. And I actually, that's you, now that you brought that up, Alex, I think it's a good thing they've announced they're not using any of the novelizations. I read all of them when I was a kid. Like, probably most of the, the Star Wars novels out there I've read or read about at some point. Um, and I think, I'm glad they're not doing uh, the novelizations. Thrawn trilogy. I'm glad trilogy. it's going to be a new story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad it's not going to be the Thrawn story, uh, trilogy. I'm glad it's not going to be the uh, the Young Jedi stories, though I liked those when I was a kid. They were cute. Um, let the books exist in their own little universe like they always have and do a new story. I'm glad about that. Now here's everyone, all the headlines said, Disney buys Star Wars. But really, they bought Lucasfilm. So what I was about, just going to bring that up. Yeah, what about Indiana Jones? What about Willow? What about the real one we're all questioning here, Howard the Duck? Is is um, Sam fighting a bear in the background? I yeah probably. Sam Sam likes to do other things like build cars, make lunch, fight bears. Um, he's he's an adventurer. His apartment gets <laughs> ransacked every week. Yeah, the burglar comes by and says a few words. Um, so I, I you say Howard the Duck, Alex. My biggest excitement out of this, and I actually tweeted this from the site's account. Those of you who follow us at Review to Be Named on Twitter. Um, Muppet Babies is now much more likely to be able to return in some way to be, finally be released on DVD. And that's exciting to me. Muppet Babies is good. So you have, you have oh, all of these other uh, products that are coming in and, and are now going to be able to be a thing. And I think that's, that's great news as well. 
I don't know. I don't know if Disney's going to jump on the Indiana Jones bandwagon. I've, I've heard that from a few places, and I think for for the moment that's probably going to be left alone. But it wouldn't surprise me eventually. Do you if think Indiana Lucas Jones would became have a thing? No, Lucas didn't really Spielberg. have a hand in any of the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, but Lucas uh, Lucasfilm, you know, they own the Indiana Jones, so that's as gone as Star Wars is from Lucas's control. It's not as gone. Because, oh, from Lucas. Yes. Okay, I thought you just meant, um, like, yeah. as a franchise. Well, if you think about it, like, Lucas, the only thing he did with Last Crusade was say, like, what about the Holy Grail? So, <laughs> I like your Lucas like, he impression. hasn't been that's too really involved good. in the Indiana Jones. Yeah, that, I don't think that's what he sounds Spot. like. George <laughs> Lucas is... Yeah, I don't think... That's my just hating George Lucas impression of George Lucas. <laughs> um, the other big thing I wanted to bring up, which I think is, is obvious but hasn't been talked about a whole lot yet, is Disney now owns the rights to the original cuts of all of the movies. See, I, you know, do I they? was thinking about this. I don't know. Do they? Yes. I thought it was Paramount. To my understanding, they, they, got, they got the rights to the original cuts of the movies as well. So is, do you know if Disney is going to release those because everybody wants them on Blu-ray? I assume. Before they go back a- in the Disney vault, yeah. I assume that's a possibility now, and that's something that's very exciting to me. See, I, 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 I had heard rights, that, but like, I there were rumors I, that, like, George Lucas burned the negatives of the original <laughs> cut. Well, we know that harsh. the Library of Congress has a copy of the original Star Wars, A New Hope, so at least that still exists. <laughs> um, and I, I sincerely doubt that Lucas burned the negatives. Um, <laughs> I am sure they're somewhere. I'd like to think that there's a chance now that we get the originals on Blu-ray without fucking Hayden Christensen's ghost and... That ridiculous uh, music sequence in Jedi. Yeah. Just, just give me the things that I want. <laughs> that's all I ask, I, world. That's what Disney's in the business of. I mean, 2015, Catering before you. those movies come out, they probably will release those, right? Because I don't know. no matter what happens... Well, no matter what. Like, George Lucas doesn't really have a say in it anymore. And it will make everyone money. Except yeah. for me. Yeah, I will lose money on this, but I'm okay with it. Yeah, yeah, I think most fans would pay for this. I are, I bought the new Blu-ray with all the edits in it, all the new edits in it, because I love Star Wars and I wanted it on Blu-ray. And if they come out with the originals on Blu-ray, buy it again, no problem. Yeah. Um, I think I think we're probably about ready to wrap this up. We've done a lot on Star Wars, so why not why don't we go around and do some final thoughts, Alex? I mean, I want people to. Remember that there's a bigger picture. They bought Lucas Arts, includes ILM, Lucas uh, Games. Ah, fuck, I forget what it is. Lucas Entertainment, Lucas Games, or whatever that has Grim Fandango. Uh, all these great games that could be either expanded on in new games or in movies. They bought uh, Skywalker Sound. There's a lot that they purchased for four billion dollars. Just remember that. Just- <laughs> All right, everyone remember that. Um, Chris, last thoughts? Uh, I think this is good news all around. I think that the thing that excites me, just as I said earlier, was just this idea that everything is just opened up now. You have so much more potential to get some new ideas in Star Wars, some new characters, and I think what we all wanted from a Star War, another Star Wars trilogy was not just returning to the original well and revisiting all the classic places. Like, yeah, it'd be cool to check into them now and then, but I think the thing that was most exciting about the original Star Wars trilogy was in every movie, you went to a new location. You went to new planets, you met new aliens, there were uh, new kind of threats out there. It was just always, it was just new, 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 and I think that's what's the most exciting thing about an expanded Star Wars. Not 
trilogy and beyond. Certainly. Uh, Sam? I mean, I think you, if if you're a fan of Star Wars, you should be happy, and you should... I think it's worth getting excited about. Because, um, sadly, George Lucas being away from the Star Wars franchise is the best thing that's happened to the Star Wars franchise since George Lucas made the first three movies. Um, and, you know, even if even if this next, the seventh one isn't so great, just the idea that there's, like, so much time. It's like, it's like think about, like, Batman. You know, it, they made some great Batman movies, and then they made some really shitty ones, but then they made some great ones again. Star Wars is kind of in that court now where that, that's kind of possible because, you know, George Lucas, as long as he owned it, he was going to be the man, you know, behind the camera and calling all the shots. And as we learned in the latest trilogy... You know, no one was going to tell him no to anything. But now we have, there's the ability to change directors and to change visions and to change directions with the story in any way that, you know, the creative people want to. So, you know, this is this is the best thing that could have happened to Star Wars, I think. And people are right to be happy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I and really people need thought... to be happy about this. Stop with your belly aching. Yeah. People should just be happier aching. in general. I really thought that uh, we were going to have to wait till Lucas died for someone else to get their hands on Star Wars. I, I, honestly, I thought he was going to just sit on it, and then eventually once he died, it would be sold off and someone would make a new Star Wars movie. It was clear that eventually in life we would get another Star Wars because it's too profitable a franchise to be left fallow, and everyone will always go see a new Star Wars movie. But I thought it was going to take a lot longer. And I have to say that this is news that it had me more excited than I've been about anything in recent memory in pop culture. Um... I love Star Wars. Star Wars was part of my childhood. It was part of what made me love pop culture the way that I do. And the idea that we can get more of it, even if, like you said, even if Episode Seven is bad, there's always more time. Disney will not go away as a, as a company. They're going to make Star Wars movies into the foreseeable future. Some of them will be good, and that's exciting to me. So Star Wars is I the imagine, thing that brings Disney down. <laughs> I imagine that Star Wars uh, news will be coming out at a fairly regular clip over the next several years. And while we'll try not to talk about it too much on the podcast, we will probably be circling back around it several times. So we'll come back. We'll discuss more. Um, there's always going to be a lot for us nerds to say. Now I want to turn things over to you, Sam, and we're going to talk about SNL's election coverage this season. Yeah, well, so, oh, man. Uh, since, uh, <laughs> you know, we're recording this on Saturday, so this is before the Louis C.K. episode and the final episode before the election. So, obviously, we don't really know how that's going to happen, but let's just say it was great, right? Wasn't Louis C.K. funny, guys? I imagine he is amazing. Um, even if the show's not that good around him, he'll be funny. Yes, always. Um, so, you know, SNL's kind of bread and butter, since it's been on the air, has been it's kind of riffing on political figures. And, you know, sometimes people have argued that during elections that SNL kind of might influence people. Um, and I think last, last election, 2008, I think we kind of saw that with Sarah Palin. I mean, Tina Fey, Sarah Palin became part of the zeitgeist. Um, this year, however, I want to know what you guys have thought, if you've watched it at all. Um, this year, it's been mostly surrounding Obama versus Mitt Romney. And I have to say, in my opinion, there was never a lot to do with Obama in the first place, even when he was like, you know, the new guy on the block. 
and we didn't have a figure like Sarah Palin this year. So there wasn't, I don't think, as much fodder for SNL. I want to know what you guys have thought of SNL's covering of this election cycle it's been. Well, I think that a lot of the, like you say, we don't really have a character this election. We have, uh, Obama is always, the, the biggest joke people make about Obama, I think, is that he's kind of boring. And Mitt Romney is also <laughs> kind of boring. Yeah. In yeah. terms of, like, <laughs> comedy jokes. I think, so, they've, I think they've been trying to latch on to Joe Biden as the character for this election cycle. But it hasn't hit in the way that Sarah Palin did at all. No, I think well, they've gone with, Sudeikis is doing uh, Biden and uh, Romney. And I don't think either's hitting. I think I think Biden's a little bit funnier of a character than Sudeikis's Romney. It doesn't hit like that. Is not it, like if you guys remember from two thousand eight, the Sarah Palin uh, or the Tina Fey Sarah Palin that was in like the news every week. Yeah, um, so but, good. But uh, but Romney's or uh, Sudeikis's Romney. I don't. Nobody really seems to care. I mean, it's not like. It's just not, it's, I mean, his impression is okay, but there aren't really any jokes there, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think what we've seen a lot of the election coverage devolve into is the standard SNL format of, here, there was a debate, let's do a debate sketch, um, but there aren't any, that many jokes, you know? They did, a, they did a joke around, oh, Romney and Obama want to fight each other after the second debate, which was the most obvious way to go with that, but I just don't think there's been a lot of other places for them to take it, you know? So I think their their straightforward political sketches have been boring because there's not a whole lot for them to do. I can't really blame them. But I think they've done some good things around the edges uh, with some weird stuff. I love the their undecided voter sketches. Oh, that was Those great. Those funny. are yeah. funny, yeah. Yeah, I think I some thought, of the best stuff has been the stuff that hasn't focused on the candidates. Like you said, the undecided voter stuff and also the pundits, I think, has been pretty funny. Like every time I, they bring in the pundits. I thought that Kate McKinnon's Ann Romney, while not really Ann Romney at all, was hysterical. I thought that was a really funny sketch. She was just, like, insane, and I thought it was funny. Yeah. Um, so there was – I think there was good stuff around the edges, uh, but the middle was kind of empty. That's what I would say. Haters I, Carville was great, I thought. Well, his oh, Carville's always Bill great. Hader. Yeah. You hate, hate Bill Hader? Yeah, Bill he's Hader. terrible. We, he's, like, the best part of SNL. He Seriously. Is <laughs> sad. That's terribly sad. <laughs> Oh my I God. think that Hater is like, yeah, a, a comedic genius, personally. Yeah. <laughs> On the SNL, I watched uh, election SNL's coverage from Hulu, their little section. Everything I saw him in, I like. Uh, well, is that all you've seen of SNL? Yeah, of course. I don't want to watch SNL. Oh, well, there you go. Well, <laughs> Bill Hader is by far the best part of SNL. I Which mean, is why I don't want to watch Stefan at some point, Alex. <laughs> what? Look up Stefan, Bill Hader's character on Weekend Update. Who is just? It's just. I think that's. A, it sounds like a terrible waste of my time. The easiest. <laughs> the easiest thing to say is that it's like a joy to watch. It's not always hysterical, but Hater has so much fun with the role that I just. It makes me happy whenever he does it, and he always breaks every time. That's not a good thing. I think it, it's fun to watch. It is good. I, I enjoy it. You should check. Jimmy it out. Fallon got railed for doing that. I never. It, it never bothered me as much when Jimmy Fallon did it, but also I don't think Jimmy Fallon was as good a sketch comedian as Hater is. So, Probably true. I think, you know, Carol Burnett broke during the Carol Burnett show sometimes, but she was so funny that whatever she was doing was so funny that it, it was fine. And I think it's the same way with Hater. When Jimmy Fallon broke, it was like, Jimmy Fallon can't keep it together because he's not a great sketch comedian. Because he's and a I child. I think I'm thinking he's actually a fairly good talk show host. But when Hater breaks during Stefan, it's because what he is being asked to say 
is so outlandish and hysterical that he can't keep it together. And I like I can get behind that, and I think it's funny. I, don't know. I just thought the might just be my like bias against SNL of these years. I thought a lot of the sketches that I saw were mediocre at best. And that goddamn one about the, the album or whatever. Fuck, what was it? Oh, the uh, best of conventions video? No, no, that the. Shit, let me look it up real quick. The uh, video of like the cutaways, the cutaways one, that was pretty good. Yeah, the cutaways to the convention, like the. Yeah, I like yeah. that one. Um, the one I'm talking about is the underground uh, festival. Oh, they do that the all extreme. the time, and it's never funny. Yeah, no, that's awful, and that's what I assume all of Chanel's kind of sounds like now. I just don't want to watch it. I don't think they have very good people on there. I don't think the Weekend Update's good. I don't like that guy that does it. Does I, I, I'm, I have yeah, Seth, Seth Meyers, Meyers problems as well, and we can talk about that in a minute. But um, I came back to SNL this season after several seasons off because Sam wanted to do election coverage, and so I've just been watching it. And I actually think, I mean, it's always hit or miss, you know? There's never, it, it's very rarely a sterling episode of the show, but I think it's uh, it's worth watching. Maybe you should go check I out I think SNL always gets a bad rap, because no matter when it's been on, people have said, oh, it's terrible now, it used to be so much better. That's yeah. always been the line on SNL, always. And I think I want to keep that. I want to keep my Will Ferrell years just pure. But you know what? And when people Will Ferrell were saying was on, exact... everyone thought that Adam Sandler's years were better. But people were saying exactly yeah. that. They were but saying, I didn't watch oh, these, these guys suck. The the ones that we remember from like our childhood, like like the Molly Shannon, Sherry O'Terry, Will Ferrell, like those group people were saying how terrible it was then. And now we, they... look at it, we look back on it fondly because the fact of the matter with SNL is that it's always been kind of hit or miss. They're always but I don't think we'll look back on, and they're always going to be bad sketches in an episode. You're not, it's pretty much impossible to have a episode of SNL where every you know every single one hits really well. I mean, I try. They have a week. They have a half of television every week. Yeah, they have. They have to have a. They have a week. They have really less than a week because they have to perform it on the last day. Well, yeah, that everything has to be written and staged. And they also have to get some special guest in the show and be able to do all that shit every week. It's like it's like an amazing feat of television if you think about it. South Park does do it better, actually. Uh, South Park I mean, is more do impressive because they got to animate that shit. But you know who helps out on South Park? Bill Hader. So I'm going to end it with keep that. Keep him behind the camera. Um, I didn't know until the documentary that Bill Hader was like a consultant on that show. Yeah. He's, he's an impressive man and funny. I love Bill Hader. Uh, going back <laughs> to the actual coverage for a second. Um, Damn it, Chris. The... <laughs> I think the weakest of it was actually the debate sketches, which were basically just kind of recasting moments that actually happened in the debate in a kind of silly way. And it happened three times, at least, right? They did three reaction debates to... Did they do one for the fourth? Uh, well, yeah, they did a debate after every presidential debate and the vice presidential debate. Well, so I think yeah, the problem was... there is, like, SNL has kind of established that they're always going to do a debate sketch. So it, it might... So it's not necessarily like, oh, we're going to do it because I think there's like a there's like a great idea there. It's like we're going to do it because we kind of have to. Yeah, but I mean, I, I could see like doing one or two of them, but like one after every debate. I mean, after a while, there's just nothing there. You can't but that's kind of like debate. that's kind of what I mean, they, they, they have to just kind of hit on the high points of each debate, like binders, women, all this other bullshit. 
Yeah. But, I mean, like, you've, you've entered into a time now where everybody has already made all the jokes, like, practically in five to ten minutes after the thing they're parroting actually happened. Um, Which I think is where SNL's kind of losing their foothold. Well, Probably part of it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, but that's big, it, that, I but that's part of like that's it. part of SNL's like own. I mean, everyone expects them to do this. If they didn't evolve do, or die, if they didn't know, well, if they didn't do a debate sketch the week after a debate, there would be much more written about it than if they if they had done one that was just mediocre. It it would be a news story by omission. Yeah, and I, I think in terms of Alex's evolve or die, I think SNL is, is an institution in a way that maybe does does hurt its quality on any given week to week, but I would rather SNL stay the way SNL is um, and be hit or miss. It's, it's, I don't, I don't see a way for SNL to, unless they make the show shorter, uh, unless they stop having guest hosts, uh, unless Seth Meyers decides to relinquish his stranglehold on the show as head writer. I don't see um, any, I don't see anything that's not a drastic change making the show, you know, I guess relevant again, if if that's what you're saying, Alex. I mean, I, think, I don't know. I guess I think the, it is what it is. I guess that because uh, if like a lot of the jokes that could have been played from SNL from the debates and such got you know overused within two maybe three days after the debate ended because of the internet. So I'm not. Well, I, it's I overused I'm not for saying you know, that I us want, who are always on the internet, right? I, I'm not saying that I want SNL to you know change itself drastically or anything. I mean, it's popular enough with like mainstream i guess that everyone you know still sits down and watches it which surprises me a lot but i'm i'm a fringe case well yeah i think i think that the comedy gets ruined for everyone who's crowdsourcing on twitter and live tweeting the debates uh but that's not that's not everybody america and that's not most of snl's audience not yet well i think the problem is i mean you know the cultural landscape and just like television in general is changing to the point where you know it used to be SNL was the only, you know, comedy show on like every week at like a late night comedy show that would hit on these issues. But now you have the daily show and Colbert and all the late night talk show, uh, like just all the late night talk shows. Um, you have all the sources of comedy on the internet. You have the onion. There's so many different sources of like where you can, people can get your, you know, political satire. Now it used to just be SNL. But I mean, it's like, it's kind of become like SNL's bread and butter that it's not like they can't really get rid of it. Um, the SNL that I remember is one that I watched and I enjoyed watching because of the turnaround time they can have on news stories. Yeah, but now, I mean, now it's even faster. The Daily Show is daily. I mean, the Daily, exactly, show, has, the exactly. daily show is a debate show the day after the debate. So, I mean, I agree. That's like, that's a problem. Um, but I mean, I don't but, think it mean, it should mean that, the you know, that uh, Saturday Night Live should go away or anything. No, I mean it's, it has its, it's place. It's, definitely. It's, I like. I mean the day stuff. the days of it being as relevant as it was when it first debuted are over. But that's just that's just like the nature of it, and it doesn't it doesn't need to be that show anymore. It doesn't need to be the show that everyone's talking about the next day. Um, and I, I, I think what we're um, forgetting a little bit is that we can't lump all of this on SNL. We're coming off two election cycles where there were distinct characters around. You had um, Will Ferrell doing George W. Bush during the Bush years, mm-hmm. and George W. Bush, as, as w- there were always moments that you could parody from George W. Bush, and just inherently, like... Well, he was a character. Yeah, know, he was a and, character. And, and Ferrell had, had a lot to do with that over, over the course of his years playing the character, you know? Yeah. Where SNL's conception of Bush was its own thing. 
Yeah. And you, I mean, it was it was there for the picking. And then you had Sarah Palin, who nobody saw coming, who was this goldmine of comedy, especially when they everyone realized that Tina Fey had an amazing impersonation of her. And I, that she basically wrote herself. I mean, half the stuff you couldn't make up that she was doing. Like it was an amazing. Like it was Sarah Palin was a godsend for SNL, especially since you know they had that connection with Tina Fey. Um, this election cycle, you just don't have that. You don't have those big characters, those big personalities that just lend themselves to this much parody. So I think we were almost spoiled in latter years. Um, and what we're looking at right now is an election with not quite as extreme characters. Um, I think you had better stuff back when uh, the Republican primary was going on. You had, I, I think you would have had a better chance there when you had the, the cast of characters moving from state to state. Yeah. that were running for the presidency. Yeah. I do feel like you could make a character out of Mitt Romney, but they don't have anyone with the chops to do it. Like, if they brought back Will Ferrell to do some sort of Romney impression, that might have some... Potential. I don't know. That's just, that's like too easy to say. Binders full of women. It's like, hey, let's just get the... Chevy Chase to come back and do it. He's funny. Like, I think no that's kind of that. ridiculous. But, I mean, you're making the same argument someone would have made during, like, the Dana Carvey years. I think it's kind of like, oh, just have someone else come and do it, and it'll be funny. I don't know. But that's I what mean, they've done. But Mitt Romney... They did that with but... Tina Fey. They did that with... Yeah, because Tina know, Fey uh, had one. I mean, they weren't like. Also, like Tina Fey fell into their laps. Like they had someone who looked exactly like Sarah Palin, who was very closely associated with the show. Um, and you know, Thirty Rock was being produced by Lauren Michaels. She worked in the same building. Like that was just a. a, a it was very fortuitous. Yeah. Uh, also, Mitt, Mitt Romney, Romney like he does. Mitt Romney isn't a character. Gas, like Sarah Palin but... was a character. Yeah. Mitt Romney got is lines. boring. I mean, there is nothing particularly funny about him. Other than how boring he is, I guess. Like the joke on Romney is, yeah, he's either either he's really boring or he's like so rich and out of touch. Like those are the two things, yeah. and they've kind of done both. But neither of them is is like a comedic goldmine the way that everything that came out of Sarah Palin's mouth was. Yeah, I guess so. I just think um, that they could sit, uh, satire him pretty well. If I they can't. Had I, I can't him. blame SNL for uh, their their lack their of poor casting sketches. choices. I don't think it's a poor casting yeah. choice either. I think Sudeikis is good to play Romney. I just think no. I just mean uh, the whole casting. <laughs> <laughs> go watch. Go watch some SNL, Alex. How many? There's some really good, especially some of the how younger many cast are, really good. are on there that you like. I heard Bill Hader. Uh, I love uh, Taron Killam. I, I like Bobby is. Really good. Bobby Moynihan is really good. Um, I like Vanessa Bayer. I like. Kate I, yeah, McKinnon. I think Bayer's great. Who else is good? Um, I think Jay Farrow hasn't really found his groove yet. Jay Farrow, they haven't given him anything to do. He's, I was going to say, he's a very funny guy. He's an impressionist, I think, essentially. I think when they figure out how to use him, um, that might be interesting. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say he's hit, uh, they've really hit how to, how to work with him yet. But he has potential. There's a lot of um, talent on this SNL cast. How, how do you guys feel about Jay Farrow's Obama? Now that he's I think he's better at Obama than do it. Fred Armisen was. His impression's better, and, um, yeah, I, I feel like Thomason was always just sort of, he was thrust into the role, and he just, like, he did with it what he can, and he's a very funny guy. Yeah, um, that, that's somebody else we didn't mention a minute ago. I love Fred Armisen. Probably my yeah. favorite. Mm-hmm. if you're talking about great people yeah. in the cast, Armisen's definitely up there. Oh, God, um, yeah. And he's, he's really sort of the heart of the show at this point, I think. Um, well, he's kind of like the veteran. He's been there for, I mean, he's like, you know, every, every SNL cast has, like, one person who's been there He's like, like the Daryl Hammond. That was, like, Daryl Hammond or Tim Meadows. Like one of those type of guys. Um, 
I think one of the reasons why, like, even when they had Pharaoh on the cast uh, last season and they kept Armisen in there was just because, like, Armisen was the old standby, even if he wasn't, like, the best choice. They were kind of going with seniority, it felt like. Well, and I also, I think they don't, it's very rare for them to recast the presidency without someone leaving the cast, Right. right? Like, whoever plays the president plays the president unless they leave the cast for the most part. Yeah. I can't think of another time in the entire show's history, in fact, where they've changed who plays the president um, without that person leaving the cast. And obviously, I'm no, I'm no SNL expert, so listeners, if there is a time, you can also let us know about that uh, to get a chance at winning the week next week. Um, but I think they, unless someone's left the cast, they let the person stay in the presidency, so... Yeah, I think you're right for the most part. Um, it is what it is, I guess. Um, so, any any last thoughts before we uh, move on from SNL? No. No, I think we covered this. Everyone knows my point of view at this point. <laughs> Louis tonight. That'll be fun. Yes. Um, hopefully, Louis is as good as we all hope it will be. We love Maybe Louis. because I love Louis C.K., I will check it out tonight. Check it out tonight, and we'll talk in future weeks, and we'll see if you've maybe softened a little bit, though probably you won't have. I'll watch it tonight, and that'll probably be it. Only probably <laughs> half watch it Um... All right, well, why don't we move on? Chris, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Marvel Comics and all the end of runs that are going on there. Okay, cool. Uh, so as some people may have uh, remember from way, way, several podcasts back, I don't remember which podcast to be exact, uh, what's happening with Marvel Comics right now is you have a whole bunch of series that are uh, wrapping up right now, and you have writers who are ending uh, three-year, five-year, in some cases, eight-year runs on particular titles, and they're bringing these runs to a close in order to ramp up for everybody doing a musical chairs-type shuffle. Uh, all the writers and artists are changing what books they're going to be working on. But the important thing to remember for this month is that you see a whole bunch of runs that have become... Um, I guess you've had uh, characters become synonymous with certain writers because they've been working on them for so long, finally now wrapping up, and we're finally seeing some conclusions. So... Uh, Jordan and I have been following a lot of these, so we're going to talk touch on a few of them right now to talk a little bit about what we thought of the runs as a whole and how they uh, wrapped up. Um, so let's start with uh, just general thoughts. Jordan, what titles have you been following? Uh, what have you seen wrap up? And just what do you think so far of the month of conclusions? Okay, well, I think the biggest victory for me and the one that I'm saddest to see end, even though it's been going for a while and it was, you know it's a legendary run at this point in terms of comics, is Matt Fraction's Iron Man. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's been, it's been, what, five year, it's a five-year run. I think you told me that it's the longest pairing of a, a writer and an artist on Iron Man ever. Yes, that's correct. And that's been, it's been pretty much incredible throughout. I mean, there, are, there have been high points that are some of the best superhero stories I've ever read. Uh, World's Most Wanted, which had Tony running away from Norman Osborn um, while erasing his mind. That was that was an amazing story and one of my favorite things that I've read in comics since I've become a comics reader. That was the and, uh, that was the pitch that got him the book. That was his first pitch for the character in the title. The, and I think that was the hype. I mean, oh, I yeah. think that everything he's done in the book has been very good, but that was the high point for me uh, in his entire run, and it was incredible. Uh, he, but he, I mean, he changed the way that we think of Tony Stark as a character. Yeah, uh, and he was not afraid. One of my favorite things about his run is he was not afraid to make Tony Stark into a dick. Like, Tony is, he's a good man, but he's also a terrible human being a lot of the time. And he was, he was not afraid to make him sort of a, a conflicted uh, protagonist, which I liked. Well, he took over the character at a time where I would say that, uh, I mean, this was right before the Iron Man movie came out. It was almost 
I think Fraction started writing the book around the time that the Iron Man movie came out. So, um, I mean, yeah, he had the movie to support him, but he came onto the character at a time when Iron Man's popularity was at an all-time low. This was following um, the Civil War secret invasion stories where, for all intents and purposes, Tony Stark was basically a villain now in the Marvel Universe. He was basically the the go-to antagonist for almost every single book. Uh, and Fraction just kind of leaned into it and made it work so well and just really presented one of the most full, complicated portrayals of Tony Stark that I think we've ever seen. And also really picked up on a lot of the um, interpretations that uh, Robert Downey Jr. gave to the character and like added those mannerisms into his writing of Tony Stark in the comic books. And it worked very well. I think what we've seen coming out of Fraction is a definitive take on Iron Man that we're going to see a lot of writers going back to as this is who the character is and this is our reference for how to write Tony Stark going forward from here. I completely agree. Was there anything you, you think that was a weakness of the run? Um, I think maybe towards the end there was just so much going on, which I actually enjoyed a lot, but I felt there were a few subplots that didn't quite get wrapped up. I mean, maybe Fraction was just leaving those pieces on the table for his friend and colleague Kieran Jones, who's taking over the book next, uh, to come in and start working with. But I, I felt like there were a few balls that were dropped along the way. Um, most, I, I, it's hard thinking of them right off the top of my head. I, the whole thing with Rescue... I thought was mm -hmm. kind of wrapped up a little quickly in a way that didn't quite hit the way it, it could have given a little more time to develop. I mean, that was that that was a big deal for Pepper, and then all of a sudden it's just kind of wrapped up in this. It was a good scene, but it felt a little quick to me. Yeah, for, for fans of Iron Man who have not been reading Fractions Run, uh, he actually gave Pepper Potts uh, a similar suit to Iron Man's and turned her into not, not a <laughs> superhero Potter. so much as... Uh, as uh, how, how would you describe it, Chris? Um, just a high-tech EMS responder. Basically, the suit was just designed to be like a crisis response sort of unit thing. It was, it was more designed to just save people from um, disasters than to actually... What's her name? Supervillains. Rescue. <laughs> not Iron Rescue, not Iron no. Nurse. Just um, Rescue. I would, I would say the biggest, the biggest thing for me that, I, that felt like a dropped ball, because it was a huge plot development... That was like earth shattering uh, in terms of the history of the character, uh, and then sort of never got dealt with as, with the significance I thought was Tony falling off the wagon. You know, you have yeah, perhaps the most yeah. famous thing about Tony Stark is that he's a, a an alcoholic, and Demon in a Bottle is one of the the legendary classic uh, comic stories from you know the late seventies, early eighties. It's uh, and that's such a big thing that Tony's a recovering alcoholic, and then to have Fraction. And it, I thought it made sense to have, you know, the point Tony was at in the book with fear itself going on, with the world falling apart around him, it made sense that Tony Stark might fall off the wagon. But Fraction got sort of caught up in his next big story right after that. And so you had, like, the the previously pages uh, on every in every book would say, Tony Stark has been sober for X number of days. And I thought that was a nice touch. But you never really got the uh, the story that I was hoping Fraction would tell there about, about Stark's falling off the wagon, his slow road to recovery. Well, I thought some of the interesting stuff you saw there was when uh, it was leaked to the press and that the question started circulating around of, is Tony Stark competent to pilot the Iron Man suit? 
Uh, I guess I, I think that kind of run in the last year where like all of the old Iron Man villains have been upgraded or crawling out of the woodwork and there's congressional hearings going on involving Tony's sobriety and whether or not uh, they want a person who's a known alcoholic who's just had a relapse to be piloting like the most advanced weapon known to man. Uh, I, and I think the time jump right between the, uh, the second to last and the last arc was where we kind of lost a lot of the more interesting subplots with the book. And uh, I, I liked the last arc, but I felt like the focus shifted entirely to uh, Tony and um, uh, Zeke Stane trying to outwit the Mandarin. And we kind of lost a lot of the ongoing um, subplots that have been running for so long. Yeah, and one of my favorite subplots that I think was actually the best part of the relapse story was uh, Split Lip the Dwarf. Yeah, what um, happened to him? I, he just disappeared. He's just, like, hanging around Stark Brazilian in the background for the last arc. Okay. Like, making some jokes, and it's like, okay, that's funny, but that was that was when the the relapse arc really hit for me. Is You know, Tony's yeah. in this uh, magical Asgardian place building weapons to beat back uh, the serpent in fear itself, and there's this dwarf who's, like, getting drunk with him all the time, and he's like, I want to stop, but I don't know how to stop. Yeah. And Tony's like, come back with me, I will get you help. And I thought that was great, and then it kind of nothing happened. So hopefully Jillian will pick up on that, because I like the character. Yeah, and I, I definitely got the impression that, um, I mean, Fraction and Jillian have done handoffs before. I For a little while it seemed that uh, Jillian was Marvel's, is it Jillian or Gillen? I think it's Jillian. Uh, I'm following your lead, I have uh, no idea. How is it, it was, spelled? Uh, G-I-L-L-E-N. It's Gillen. Gillen? Okay. Our apologies, Mr. Gillen. Gillen. Because it's, uh, <laughs> it's Karen, because it's Karen Gillen on uh, Doctor yeah. Who, not Joe. Well, I told you, Sam, that I would always misspell her name because of Kieran Gillen. There you go. Um, yeah. When I when I started watching Doctor Who, it's like Karen Gillen, Kieran Gillen, Taryn Killam. Ah. Well, I I think well, let me just just to wrap up Iron Man very briefly. Uh, again, it's extremely impressive that this was a run, the the longest run by, and not just Matt Fraction. We've been talking a lot about Matt Fraction, but Salvador Larocca never missed a beat. It's it's unprecedented in comics this day for the same artist to publish 12 issues of a book a year. LaRocca was doing more than that. He was doing at least 14 to 18 issues of Iron Man a year. Never missed a deadline. Never missed And the art was always stellar. Yeah, and we never we never saw Phil on Iron Man. And it was these two for the past five years on this character. And I thought the, the final issue was very good. Probably one of my favorites of the conclusion so far. And that uh, Fraction definitely left the door open for incoming writer Kieran Gillen who he's handed off books in the past to before Uncanny X-Men, I think being the most recent, um, to really come in and start pick up some of these pieces that Fraction and Laraka added to the Iron Man mythos. But let's transition really quickly over to another Fraction book. We'll not spend as much time on it, but I definitely want to touch on it. Uh, the Mighty Thor also ended this week, which uh, I think you and I are both in the same place about this one. Uh, Fraction came in with this book. I, I was very excited when it was announced Fraction was going to write Thor because it's no secret that Fraction is a huge Thor fan, has wanted this title for a long time, and he's a guy known for these big, crazy, wild sci-fi ideas, so Fraction and Thor seemed like a match made in heaven. But the run itself was actually, I think, one of... It, it never quite lived up to the hype or the potential. I, I think Matt Fraction is one of my favorite writers in comics right now. Absolutely. And The Mighty Thor is my least favorite thing of his that I've read. Um, and, yeah, I think it was very good at points. The the recent crossover with Kieran Gillen's phenomenal journey into mystery, uh, Everything Burns, was very good. Uh, 
And I think what, something that's interesting that Thor does and that Iron Man did, and I think every uh, last issue, actually, that I've read of From Marvel at the end here, they've all sort of had a, a meta twist to them. So, you know, the last issue of Fractions Thor and the last issue of Iron Man was sort of like, do we need a Thor? What does Thor mean to the Marvel Universe and to us as storytellers? You know, Iron Man. Do What does Iron Man mean? What is Tony Stark for in the Marvel Universe? And Journey into Mystery especially was sort of like, what are stories about? Why are we telling these stories? Yeah. And what what do they matter? Why do they matter? And why are they important? And I think that's an interesting way to end up end runs. And I've enjoyed all of those different takes on it. And I think another meta twist to the last issue of Thor might be possibly one of my favorite issues of Fractions Run was this, because one of his major themes was the cyclical nature of the Norse myths, how the Norse myths like built into them is this idea that the gods go through their motions and there will be a Ragnarok, the gods will die, and then the gods will be reborn and kind of go through the same motions over and over and over again until eternity. Uh, and I, what, a, what better metaphor for uh, the serial storytelling of comics is there? than the idea of the North, the North cycles and this inability to break from these certain traditions and these motions and this idea that there will be death, there will be rebirth, and there will always kind of be a reset. So in a lot of senses, I thought that the last issue of Thor was really encapsulated a lot of what Fraction tried to do with his run and really set it better than most of his run did. Because, I mean, it wasn't, from Fraction being one of my favorite writers, it wasn't my favorite thing that he's written. Yeah, I would say um, I don't see that theme playing out to the most, most of the rest of his run the way that I would have liked to, because I think it's an interesting theme. And um, I think that Kieran Gillen's Journey into Mystery was playing with that a lot more, with the idea of Loki having been reincarnated as Kid Loki and the question of, well, how much of Loki's personality is still in him? Is he destined to be this great villain, or can he change and be a hero? Um... And the way that he's sort of locked into certain paths and can't change certain things about himself, I thought was very, uh, very much played into those themes and was fantastically done. Absolutely. And I think that's one that might be my own personal theory as to why Fractions Run was a, a, a strange departure from a writer who's usually always hit. Like, this was a rare miss from Fraction, was that two of his major. And this is entirely conjecture. It really seemed like two of the biggest things he wanted to tackle in Thor ended up being done elsewhere in other books. The first being the idea of uh, Thor's relationship with his father, Odin, and Fractions. That's always kind of a thing that Thor writers touch on. So everybody kind of has, in the same way that you want to have your big Batman versus Joker story. If you're doing Thor, you kind of want to have your big Thor in his relationship with his father story. And I think that was kind of pushed up because you had that summer where Captain America and Thor were hitting the theaters and Marvel really wanted a big event that featured them. So I think Fraction took a story that he might have been building towards a little bit and moved up the timetable on it and did that in fear itself. And then you had the story of Kid Loki, who was, that was a major element of Fraction's run at the beginning. Like Fraction was the one who introduced this concept. Um, And... Uh, you could tell that he was ramping up to something, but then Kieran Gillen st- took over uh, Journey to Mystery, and Marvel launched another Thor book because the title was selling well. There was a movie. They wanted to expand their uh, income on these titles. Uh, and you had Gillen take Fraction's idea and run with it and just do it so well that I think Fraction may have backed off 
some of his initial ideas for the character. And you, I think the evidence there is the the crossover we were just talking about, where Journey into Mystery, a title that I don't think a lot of people read, maybe have never heard about, basically took over Thor, and Fraction kind of just gave his book over to Gillen and followed his lead on it for his final arc on the title. And fans, fans of good storytelling in general, you should really check out Kieran Gillen's run on Journey into Mystery. It's, uh, it's just, it's got some of the most inventive, creative touches and meta touches uh, in recent comics history, and it's just a damn good story. Absolutely. Um, um, so finally, the one, and we won't discuss this in a length at all, but I want to touch on the end of Captain America and the end of Bendis's Avengers because these are the long ones that are ending now. I think both of these are about eight-year runs the longest Marvel has seen in quite some time coming to a close. Um, Avengers hasn't wrapped yet. It will wrap next month. That's both Avengers and New Avengers, both by Bendis. And Captain America wrapped this month. Both title, all, well, the tenure of both these writers on these franchises, Ed Brubaker on Captain America, Brian Bendis on the Avengers, went eight years and published more than 12 issues per year. So especially in the case of Bendis, who was on multiple Avengers titles. So these are impressive, not like huge runs coming to a close right now. Um, Bendis is writing 30 plus Avengers stories for eight years. Oh yeah. It was, I I can't even remember how many different Avengers titles he was working on while this was going. So these are big, big chunks of these characters and these franchises, recent histories. Um, Jordan, you're not current on Captain America? No, I've read the first half of Brubaker's run, um, but I'm not current on it. Okay, the conclusion was very good. I I think uh, Brubaker's last year on the title was... I think it was starting to show that he was getting a little bored with the universe, but uh, the last issue that he wrote was absolutely phenomenal, just a perfect send-off and a love letter to the character. Um, so look forward to that. Uh, I definitely think that Brubaker really put a nice exclamation point on his run. And then next month we will have the Avengers conclusions. Um, any thoughts on those? I think Bendis likes to sit on a book for years and he's usually very, very good at it. Uh, his Daredevil run was long and was fantastic. I have not read Ultimate Spider-Man, but I hear it's still amazing and he's been writing it for 12 years now. Yeah. Um... I never got that into his Avengers. I think at the very beginning, New Avengers was very interesting and fun, um, but that kind of lost the thread, and I, it was a book that I kept waiting to get amazing, and I never thought it did. And his, his, the relaunches of both those titles from, what, maybe two and a half years ago, um, I, didn't, I didn't ever really get that into it. And I've always read them, and I, I thought they've been good, but uh, I think Bendis does some things about the titles very well. He does the banter between all the superheroes very well. Um, and some of the larger story constructions on it, I, I haven't been as crazy about. But you just you have to respect the fact that Bendis has been cycling every major Marvel character in these books for almost a decade, writing, like I said, thirty or more issues with these characters a year, um, and that they've been readable. You know, they, I don't think I can't think of an Avengers arc that wasn't at least fine. Uh, I've never thought like this is so bad. I need to stop reading the books. You know, I've read I've read all of his run and enjoyed a lot of it. It was very, yeah, I think very consistent is, I I think I feel the same way that you do. I think it was very consistent. It wasn't always my favorite interpretations of the characters, but uh, I think the important thing to remember with Bendis' run, and I'm going to expound on this later in probably a modest proposal at some point, was that it might have been, I think it was probably one of the most important uh, runs on superhero comics of the last decade because it really fundamentally changed a lot of preconceptions people had about 
uh, these characters and Marvel Comics as a whole. So I think Bendis kind of rewrote the rule book, and for years, I think people will kind of look back at this as a time where all of the preconceived notions of what you can and can't do with these characters was just thrown out. That rule book was entirely discarded, and you had so a lot of writers taking a lot of chances that you hadn't seen in previous um, times. And I yeah. think that, yeah, I think those are my final thoughts. I agree. Um, it's sort of the end of an era here, and Chris and I will be reading all of the Marvel Now books as they come out, just like we did last year for the DC New 52. And I think we're at least going to do a crossover on the site, or a crosstalk on the site where we discuss them all. We may do a special comics-only podcast sometime next March once they've all launched to talk about what we liked and what we didn't like. So stay tuned on all of that. Um, Now it's time to wrap up the show and uh, talk about who won the week. So this one was actually not too too difficult to determine. We didn't have too much tabulations to do. Um, The Rachel Tardif Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week goes to Star Wars fans. All of us who love Star Wars won the week. So I'm not making billions of trophies. No one's getting a cash prize, but we should all be happy. Uh, with that, this has been kind of a packed show. We've run through a lot of things, so you'll have to uh, excuse us if it was uh, a bit breakneck pace this week. Next week is Happy Hour Podcast. Things are going to slow down. We're going to talk about uh, James Bond. It's going to be James Bond-themed. We're going to have some fun with that. So before we sign off, you should check out our website at reviewtobenamed.com. You should follow us on Twitter at reviewtobenamed. You should email us uh, at reviewtobenamed at gmail.com, and especially if you take up one of our challenges throughout the show and email us the answer to our questions, then you will win the week next week. So good luck with that, listeners. And everyone, have a good week. We'll be back with our Happy Hour podcast next week. Bye. 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 Bye.